This is an RNZ podcast. Last weekend here on Media Watch, we mentioned that the New Zealand Herald had announced that they had signed up more than 10,000 people to their digital subscriptions launched just six weeks ago. A good start towards its longer-term target of converting 4 to 6% of its free-riding online audience into paying customers within three years. On his 9 to noon slot on Tuesday, former Herald editor-in-chief Gavin Ellis said that was good, but there wasn't much good news in the biggest annual international survey of the media scene, which came out last week week. So I think they'll be happy with what they've got. They won't be happy, though, with what they read in the Reuters digital report that came out uh, last week. Uh, Because despite the efforts of the news industry generally, um, they found only a very small increase in the numbers paying for online news. But now that the Herald's paywall is up, the key to getting those readers to pay the premium is a steady flow of premium content worth paying for, including quality, original and professional New Zealand journalism. An example of that was the fascinating and at times worrying article about Gloria Vale, published by the Weekend Herald recently. This told the story of John Reddy, a father of ten who left Gloria Vale after his eldest daughter was kicked out, and he was caught with Christian magazines that were not approved by the hierarchy there. The story of his fight to free his wife and the rest of his family, written by freelance journalist Anka Richter, was the main news feature of the paper's review section on the 1st of June. And only the Herald's paying premium content subscribers could read that on the Herald's website. But you could read a cut-down version of that online for nothing just hours after it first appeared in the Weekend Herald. It was on the Mail Online website with this clickbaity headline. I don't want my kids growing up in a tyrannical society. Desperate father wants his wife to leave Gloryvale Colt with their 10 kids, but says she is suffering from Stockholm Syndrome. Now, the Daily Mail is the UK's second biggest-selling tabloid newspaper, and its online arm has been a roaring success based on it becoming a clearinghouse for huge amounts of celebrity and gossip stories. Dozens of them run down the right-hand side of the Daily Mail homepage, the so-called sidebar of shame. Every day, millions of people around the world go to the Mail Online to get their fill of gossip. But there's also news harvested from all over the world, and with that in mind, the Daily Mail Online opened a hub with dozens of journalists in Australia more than a decade ago. But most of those journalists aren't generating original news, they're scouring other outlets for it and rewriting and republishing it as fast and as often as possible. Indeed, so quickly do they co-opt news stories that they often find they're very close to the original and the mail stands accused of theft and plagiarism on an industrial scale. The day her Gloria Vale piece appeared in the Weekend Herald, Anka Richter was horrified to see a rehashed online version of it on the Daily Mail Australia site, though she wasn't that surprised. It's not the first time this has happened to her and many other journalists. Now, with the Herald being across the Tasman Sea, it could be a case of out of sight and out of mind, but Daily Mail Australia even brazenly rips off stuff from their direct rivals across the ditch, like Fairfax Media and Rupert Murdoch's News Corp. Late last year, the ABC's Media Watch TV show put out a call on Twitter to Australian journalists who reckoned that the Daily Mail Australia had ripped off their work. The response was overwhelming, and Media Watch devoted a whole episode to that on ABC television. Here's a snippet. The mail takes from everyone, as you can see from this list of people and organisations including the ABC, Nine, News Corp, Fairfax, the New Zealand Herald and a bevy of freelance journalists like Ginger Gorman who told me to watch their work has been stolen. And its kleptomania ranges far and wide. The Townsville Bulletin tells us it had five stories lifted only last week. 
While in Melbourne, Herald Sun editor Damon Johnston tells us he's used to having court stories stolen on a daily basis. They will take it within minutes of us publishing it and not having had anyone in court. And often it's repackaged and republished from someone in Sydney. And gallingly for Anka Richter in Christchurch, her Glory of Ale story on the Daily Mail Australia site carries the byline by Karen Ruiz for Daily Mail Australia. Now, if it makes the media so angry, why do they allow this to happen? And is there anything, in fact, that they can do? Well, the ABC's Media Watch show pointed out that some big players in Australia have tried. Back in 2014, the editor of the Daily Telegraph, Paul Whitaker, had News Corp fire off an angry letter to the Mail threatening legal action. And in 2015, in another burst of outrage, News Corp did it again. But it never got to court, perhaps because what the Mail is doing may actually be legal, as the Mail claims. The key is the fair dealing provision in the Copyright Act, which says you can copy someone else's news story if you make sufficient acknowledgement, which is why the Mail credits the author and links to the original. So, that is one obstacle. The second is, the law says you have to sue on individual cases one at a time. And as intellectual property expert Dr Cathy Bowery told MediaWatch... The value of litigating for any individual work is probably not worth it. Sad but true. And another problem is that the law is not very clear on what is actually fair, and no-one seems keen to clarify it or toughen it up. All media organisations like to pinch other people's stories from time to time and don't really want the law to stop them. And all this applies to Anka Richter and her Glory of Ale story appropriated by the Daily Mail Australia on the 1st of June. There is a link back to the original version in the Daily Mail's copy, back to the Herald's paywall. But Anka Richter reckoned that wasn't a fair go from Daily Mail Australia and she confronted them about it. So what did the Daily Mail have to say for itself to her? first I thought, oh, wow, this is making news uh, internationally. So, you know, it's kind of what you want as a journalist um, for your stories to spread. So at the same time, I thought, oh, hang on. They've actually just rehashed it, made actually two mis- two mistakes in there. Um, a linking to the Herald, they did that, mm-hmm. but uh, the Herald story is behind, behind a paywall. So I was, you know, it's pretty clear that maybe it wouldn't lead to many more clicks on the Herald page. So, yeah, no, actually, um, no, I wasn't happy about it. Yeah, and indeed another journalist's name, a Sydney-based reporter for Daily Mail Australia, had her name on it as a byline. That was the, I think that was the main thing. I thought, hang on, everything in this story has come through me and my hard research. And, I mean, you have to know, this is not just the, the work I've done for the Herald. I spent months and months last year for a big report for New Zealand Geographic about levers from Gloryvale. So a lot of that work actually went into the story as well, the trust I'd built and the information I had about others. So it wasn't just a quick shot. So I really felt ripped off, yeah. There were other stories about John Reedy published previously, um, even this this year. Uh, so his his story and his family situation was not unknown. But it's pretty clear to you, looking at that story, that the journalist has seen what's published on that day and very closely used your work as the source. Absolutely. They hadn't used any other source. They had another side. They had one sidebar, to be fair, where they had some general information about Gloryville. And I kind of wonder if they did that to, maybe for legal reasons, to say, well, this wasn't just a one-on-one um, rehash. But everything that was in the piece under the byline of the other reporter. Um, I did email her <laughs> and her boss, but they didn't read it very well. They made, like I said, they got um, two place names wrong. They confused Nelson, the city of Nelson, with Nelson Creek, which is down on the west coast, a few hundred kilometres away. Um, they made a mistake about um, 10 of John's children being a glory of whereas his oldest daughter had left before him. So they didn't even really read it closely. Does the fact that 
The New Zealand Herald, which agreed to publish it, has its uh, original journalism behind a paywall now to make sure they get some income from people viewing it online. Does that make it worse in your mind? Yeah, of course. I mean, because, as you probably know, a lot of people... Because the Daily Mail just rehashed sort of the bullet points. You know, they always have these bullet points at the beginning, and they just go for some of the very basic facts. It means people who read that piece think, oh, yeah, they've got the gist of my story anyway. My story was... 3,500 or something words long. All the work and care that I put into my long piece and my writing and the style and, you know, all of that, that's, that's such a disappointment that people just then just basically get a, get a condensed version that I would have never written in that vein. So it's, I'm, I'm sure it would have backfired for the Herald and for people reading my original work. I mean, not only that, the Mail Australia probably uses its own social media channels to put out that story. So they may get lucrative clicks and traffic mm. and so on effectively piggybacking off the stuff that you did. Absolutely. Not the first time, first time by the way, um, Colin. They did that um, about two years ago when I exposed a pyramid scheme here in New Zealand called Circle, which was aimed at women, and they found that fascinating enough and, um, yeah, I used the photos and, and, and basically my content as well. But at the time I had bigger fish to fry, so that wasn't my focus at the time. But, yeah, they've actually done it before. So what... Was the response when you got in touch to say, uh, excuse me, you have taken my story, and uh, I mean, were you actually demanding that they uh, compensate you? Yeah, well, first of all, it wasn't as straightforward to just get in touch with them. I mean, to be honest, it was one phone call in London and I had an email address and I found out who the head of the Sydney office was and I wrote them an email and basically just invoiced them and said, look, you just um, took my story and um, and, I, and I send them an invo- invoice. Um, now I wish I would have actually um, done some research as well to find out what their rates are because I sort of I charged it based on my New Zealand rates. At the same time, I don't want to send them a bill that would clearly, you know, that would, um, where they would just put their foot, foot on the ground and say, no, no way, we're going to pay that amount to you and we haven't done anything wrong. So I sent them a fairly reasonable invoice and they got back to me saying, well, we actually didn't breach any copyright, um, but still, <laughs> sort of as an act of goodwill, we're paying you. Well, when the ABC's Media Watch TV show did a whole show about it, the outcome of that was when they looked at it legally that, um, look, it's a bit of a grey area because the Daily Mail will often include a link back to the original story, so there's a, a form of attribution there. When the ABC team looked at it, they found there are a lot of journalists working for that outfit, but very few of them working on original journalism. Uh, There are a lot of journalists whose job it is to scour and scrape the rest of the internet for news and then write it up in this way uh, where uh, they believe they can fairly publish it. I guess you have some sympathy maybe with journalists in the position of having to do do. that? Of of course, and it's kind of ironic in some ways because, I I mean, I, I work as a journalist, a freelance journalist for... Germany. And I actually did my training in journalism about 30 years ago. This is how old I am in Los Angeles. And that was pre-internet days, Colin. Believe it or not, we just had a fax machine. That was And that was the new thing. So m- most of our work was actually getting um, some of the national and local papers, Los Angeles Times and the National Enquirer and you name it, all, all, the, all the gossip mags. We had them first. We had them couriered from, you know, where they were published. And then we would just go through them and we would rewrite um, stuff for Germany. That was that was our main 
source of income. I mean, there were some original stories, but that's very much how it worked. And I mean, that was very tabloidy. But even for serious journal, for serious correspondence, um, let's say if you're based um, somewhere in the middle of Africa or so, um, you can't possibly go to all these countries who are in your you know, in your district, so to speak, or in the area that you're covering, and and double check everything. You just have to trust that if if you pick up something that's been reported by reliable, serious, um, quality media in certain countries that only you would be following and not every news desk editor in, in Berlin or so, then um, that's, that's, that's kind of your reporting. Just yesterday I had a piece on Spiegel Online um, about the Maori, um, the translator of Anna Frank's diary into Te Reo Maori. And I've interviewed her and did an interview with her and so on. So that's the ideal case that you actually, you pick up something from the media here and then I think, oh, I can do my own thing with it. I can contact someone and just like, you know, someone from Radio New Zealand would and then do my story. But a lot of the time also it is just um, passing on, maybe, you know, rewriting, um, you know, maybe. But I th- ideally you'd at least have a few sources or you'd put a few things together. For instance, I I've, I've write um, a bi-weekly column, which is kind of satirical about news from New Zealand. And I, you know, just, um, again, just my last one was a bit of this and that. So I had the Anne Frank diary in there. And then there was something about history roast, this this um, comedy show that's come under attack on Netflix because they had Anne Frank and Adolf Hitler in there as uh, two comedy greats. And it, you know, wasn't so funny in the <laughs> eyes of Holocaust survivors. And so that was part of my column. And then I could <laughs> could swiftly, you know, lead in lead over to Taika uh, Waititi and his upcoming film Jojo Rabbit, where mm. he is actually personifying Hitler in a com- comic way. You see, you see what I mean? So yeah, I absolutely. didn't do any direct. Re- I mean, I didn't talk to anybody specifically for my little column, but at least I picked something here and there. But that's quite different from what what the Daily Mail is doing, I think. Yeah, I mean, I did see another story of yours, which is on your own site, perhaps an example of the sort of thing uh, you could write for an audience in Germany. Uh, that might be of interest to them about life in New Zealand. Uh, the headline on it, uh, Unser Sexy Accent. So I'm guessing this was <laughs> yeah. about the time, I can't read the German, this is about yeah. the time when there were all the stories around about New Zealand's accent um, yeah. but being voted by some travel company as one of the world's sexiest. It, it has actually happened since, since I've had that intermezzo with the Daily Mail. It's actually made me rethink a bit um, how I will, you know, how much I am attributing or not. My little story about the New Zealand accent, that wasn't so much a, a it wasn't reporting, it was actually my column. So my column is always just a column, and as you know, ah. that's you know that's um, I, I've, I really take creative license there to put a sort of satirical spin on things and just pick them from here and there. And of course, I also do a credit. I did a lot of a lot of overseas reporting after the um, mosque shootings in Christchurch, of, of course. Um, and then one of the stories I did a bit further down the track was for a German media magazine about the role of the media here in New Zealand and the upcoming court cases and the reporting and so on. And my um, brilliant um, colleague Michelle Duff had done such a good story on that, um, which I mean I could have you know would have been I could have basically taken half of that and just rewritten it for Germany. And it would have fitted what I what I wanted to write for them, but that would have not been right. So what I what I took from her, I, of course, I credited to her, and then I did my own interviews and um, and and had to find my own ways of telling telling what I, you know the story I wanted to tell. I think that's the way to do it if it's a proper. If it's proper reporting and not just a little column where you just have a opinion about something. 
large news organisations don't often have foreign correspondents based here in New Zealand. We're a little bit small for that and, and big news agencies. Yeah. Uh, New York Times and uh, The Guardian, uh, based in the UK, they have a local journalist uh, covering New Zealand for them. And it's interesting, I mean, what they write often gets noticed. That, oh, the New York Times has written this about um, our politicians or, um, or The Guardian has picked up on this story or that story. But, of course, when it's in German, we perhaps wouldn't be aware of, is there a different appetite or for stories about New Zealand in Germany or perhaps elsewhere in Europe that we might not be aware of, you know, because we can't see and read the stories in English? In, in Germany, their focus um, in terms of English-speaking sto- English stories and English media is always on, you know, the UK and the US. Um, and in a, in a way, that niche has really worked for me because there was pretty much no one, at least not um, someone who could be, taken seriously enough as a, as a um, print journalist here in New Zealand when I arrived. So it was actually great because I had this, I had this sort of exotic feel to it almost when I, had, when I offered stories from New Zealand. Now that's definitely changed since the since, um, 15th of March that uh, there's a real hunger. I mean, even politically, there suddenly it was an interest in stories that, that wouldn't have been there before. Um, together with another journalist from Stern magazine who flew in here um, for a few weeks, we, we did a Big story about Jacinda. That, that's a for, big for uh, German weekly yeah, that's glossy a big news German, magazine. Yeah. Sorry, I just assume people know, but of course, no, not anymore. This, they, they're the inf- they, 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 they were quite infamous in the was it the seventies, eighties because they actually faked um, Hitler's diaries. The Hitler diaries. Or, oh yeah, the Hitler's. Okay, okay they're the ones. So if someone doesn't know who Stenis was, say, oh, they were the, they were the ones with the Hitler diaries. So they're they're a pretty big number in 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 Germany. But also, I mean, I was inundated with um with requests. I could have done so much more, and I was already working around the clock, you know, 12, 14 hours every day without a break for two, three, four weeks straight. Um, and still, I could have I could have done a lot more. There was a huge appetite. I mean, I guess because of the news value, but I think also just in the country, all of a sudden, I hope long term, you know, the German readership will not just see New Zealand as this, this uh, travel destination and the Lord of the Rings and all of that, which is all lovely and wonderful. And I mean, yeah, but um, to actually see that we're, we're a country with you know, real problems and real people and um, a fascinating um, social, bicultural um, society. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And indeed, it's, it's not just to an overseas audience that you write about these things. You mentioned uh, writing about Glory of Ale for New Zealand Geographic, which you know publishes some of the longest and most in-depth long-form journalism we have here in New Zealand, let alone you know the excellent uh, photography and illustration. You also wrote um, a long piece, Brothers and Sisters, in uh, the most recent edition, uh, which came out uh, all about Christchurch and the mosque attacks. Did you find that a tricky one to write for a New Zealand publication? I was so glad I could write for that publication and for a New Zealand publication here in Christchurch. I mean, I was the reporter on the ground, but I was also very close as someone being from Christchurch. It's actually great to write for your own community, so to speak, or for people you know who here will actually read what I've done. It I need that, and I'm not I'm not in a newsroom. I work from home alone. I'm a New Zealander too. <laughs> I've lived here for 16 years, so I think I do know um, things here pretty well. And I guess the the Muslim community is just as uh, foreign to most um, you know born and bred Kiwis as it was to me, and maybe it was even a tiny bit closer to me because a few years ago, I um, organized an event here in Christchurch at the height of the refugee crisis in in, uh, Europe, in Germany, which really 
affecting me and I wanted to do something. And uh, together with Donna Miles, who's also a journalist and a columnist for, um, for Stuff Now, um, a great one, and we organized an event here in Christchurch called See Me, I'm a Refugee because we felt both really passionate about... Um, yeah, doing doing something, you know, about the the situation of refugees. And back in Germany, my you know, I had a ten year relationship with a Iranian um, political activist when I was um, twenty to thirty years old. And so, you know, and I come from quite a politicized background in Germany as well, where we've had um, you know many asylum seekers from uh, Muslim countries. Uh, in the 90s, and there have been lots of protests, and we had a rise of neo-Nazis over there. So this was all very close to my heart. So I was actually, I think I was in the best place I could have been, and as stressful as it was and as overwhelming, and sometimes I thought um, I'm, I also feel very honoured that I, I had the chance to be that close, and I wouldn't have missed it you know, for the world. And you mentioned that you'd written about, uh, you know, from a satirical point of view about living in New Zealand. Um, On your website, there's a copy of what looks like a book cover, uh, a pyramid of sheep. uh, But in that pyramid, one of them is a garden gnome. And uh, you're going to have to explain that for us. Well, that would be me, I guess. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's, a, it's a satirical book. It's like a written mockumentary about being a Kiwi immigrant, uh, sorry, a German immigrant in God's own. <laughs> it was written in, in my early years of being a foreign correspondent here, which always sounds so big. But I thought, oh well, I'm here in the you know bottom of the earth. Not much happens, and I was kind of that was kind of the running joke of the book. I was a lot harder on the Germans in my book than I was on the Kiwis. But <laughs> <laughs> it came out. It came out the day of um, the Christchurch earthquake, which is kind of um, oh. tragic. I think it helped my promotion in some ways because there was a lot more interest you know, for radio stations and so on over there to interview me, and they wanted to talk about the earthquake, and then I had to talk about my funny book, and there was wasn't all was easy because, yeah, the earthquake, of course, affected me too. I live in Littleton, which was the epicenter, mm. and then I had to pull off this, um, ha-ha, yeah, I'm here in a country where nothing <laughs> much happens, and then that happened. Oh, yeah. That's tough. But um, <laughs> anything specifically German about the garden gnome, or were you just trying to show <laughs> one of these things is not like the other, and that's you? No, garden gnomes are so typically German. I, I tried to come up with something that, at least for the, the German readers know straight away, this is a soccer. It's like the, the um, buzzy bee for for Kiwis, something like that. It's it's a very archetypal um, Germanic um, symbol, but it's also very innocent. You know, there's no it has no political um, stance or no political baggage, no historical baggage. So yeah, I, th- I thought it's better than a say a German shepherd or something like that. <laughs> that was freelance correspondent Anka Richter, who's from Germany but is a long time resident of Christchurch and whose stories are published here and overseas, including, as we heard, by the Daily Mail Australia, who had to pay up for pilfering her in-depth look at life at Gloria Vale, first published legitimately by the New Zealand Herald earlier this month.